Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10 to start off with this morning. We also have other places we're going to go take a look at, and that's on the back of your worship guide. So if you're wanting to follow along with me on that, you can go ahead and get some jump starts on some passages there. We are wrapping up our Misconceptions About Christianity series today uh, by addressing the statement that God helps those who helps themselves or who help themselves. But before I get into that uh, this morning, I wanted to take a moment to clarify something that I said last week that did not come out the way that I meant for it to come out. You know, every now and then I get ahead of myself and say things that I think have context but really don't. And each week I always go back and I re-listen to all the messages, I want to make sure that I say everything as correctly as I can, that God is honored through what is said. If there's any point that requires clarification, I like to come back and address that. Um, is there anything that needs to be built on for the next week? You know, as we go through books of the Bible, it's good to know where we left off and where we're jumping off from before, after that. Uh, and as we go through this, there's almost always something that I say incorrectly or wish that I had said differently or better. And most of the time, it's just an oh well moment. Right? I'll try to do better next time. I can't, can't be perfect on it. But occasionally I say something that I feel like needs to be brought back up. And there was a statement that I made last week that I felt could use some clarification. Last week I mentioned that I really want you guys to dive deeply into your Bibles. And so that, because um, I don't want you to simply trust that what I'm saying is true. Right? I want you to see for yourself what's going on there because there may be a time when I feel inclined to tickle your ears and tell you what I want you to hear or what I think you want to hear. Uh, and then I said, that's not likely to happen. Right? I said, that's not likely to happen. And I, the way that it came across at listening to it again, it seemed like, wow, that sounded really arrogant. <laughs> that's not likely to happen. I don't sin like that. That's not... <laughs> Uh, I am just as prone to sin as anyone else. Uh, so for clarification, uh, it's not that I'm not capable of falling into that sin. The reason why I said it is unlikely that I will try to make the Bible say what you want it to say is because my sinful tendencies go in the opposite direction. I tend to not care enough about what other people think or say. And so I am far more likely to use the Bible as a sword to cut you down than I am to use it as a pillow to keep you comfortable, right? So when I said it's not likely that I would fall into that sin, it's not because I'm incapable of that, it's just I'm much more likely to do the other, right? I'm much more likely to be pharisaical in how I wield the word than I am in trying to make sure you're comfortable sitting there. And so I absolutely believe that I am fully capable of sinning against God with you and you how I and how I teach the Bible. Um, but knowing myself, it's far more likely that I'll go the other way instead of trying to make you comfortable. And so knowing my sinful proclivities, I just, I pray that there's always an equal part of God's expectations of us, what he expects from his people, as well as grace. And when we inevitably fail, we're going to, it's all there is, there's all there is to it. And so I want there to be a solid balance between that. Uh, and I would appreciate if you would pray for me that I would keep that balance. Putting out there God's expectation for you, but also praying towards that I would keep that comfort in there as well when we fail because we have that comfort in Christ. So I just wanted to clarify that in case anybody heard that and thought, wow, how arrogant, right? Because <laughs> that's what I thought after I listened to it. I was like, that is not what I meant by that, but it did not sound good. And so 
I wanted to clarify that before we got into it this week. So anyway, so with that cleared up, uh, let's now wrap up our misconceptions about Christianity series by figuring out if God helps those who help themselves. So in Ventura, California, there is a company called the Barna Group, who is an evangelical polling firm. So they go out and they poll people who profess to be Christians. Uh, and their goal in their business is to strategically track the role of faith and the role of how the church is doing in America by conducting thousands of studies. They do millions of interviews all the time uh, in order to show what the trends are for the church in America, and they make predictions about the faith based on statistics and numbers. Right? In 2017, they came out with a study that has this information in it, and I'm quoting them here. It says, practicing Christians find the claims of new spirituality among the most enticing, perhaps because it holds a positive view of religion, emphasizes the supernatural, and simultaneously feeds into a growing dissatisfaction with institutions. For instance, almost 3 in 10, 28% of practicing Christians strongly agree that all people pray to the same God or spirit no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. 28% of professing believers say that we are all praying to the same God as the Muslims, as uh, the Hindus, as the Buddhists, whoever you throw out there, they think that we're all praying to the same being or beings. Further, the belief that meaning and purpose come from becoming one with all that is, so we, we become a part of God, uh, has captured the minds of more than one quarter of practicing Christians. That's at 27%. The new spirituality worldview has also inched its way into Christian ethics. One third of practicing Christians at 32% strongly agree that if you do good, you will receive good, and if you do bad, you will receive bad. This karmic statement, though not explicitly from Scripture, appeals to many Christians' sense of justice. For example, another Barner study show found that 52% of practicing Christians strongly agree that the Bible teaches God helps those who help themselves. So that's more than half. Right, so overall, at least 61% of practicing Christians embrace at least one of the ideas rooted in new spirituality. So from this study, we find that roughly half of those who call themselves Christians believe that God helps those who help themselves. They believe some, Many of them believe that's an actual verse in the Bible. They couldn't point you to it, but they think that is actually Scripture. Like that verse is there. But even if they don't, even if they know it's not a verse in Scripture, they do believe that it's at least a biblical notion. In reality, though, you're not going to find God helps those who help themselves anywhere in the Bible. The saying was made famous by Benjamin Franklin, who quoted it in a line in one of his books called Poor Richard's Almanac in 1757, but it originated in 1698 from a man called Algernon Sidney, in something called Discourses Concerning Government. So we have, we have this idea, this biblical idea that has no foundation in the biblical, in the faith. It comes from secular writing that people have misinterpreted and misused and it has now become what they think is scriptural. And at first, knowing what I know about this statement, knowing, I knew where it came from, I, knew, I had a general idea that, you know, who wrote it and when it showed up, um, 
So I was planning on just jumping right into this and refuting this straight away and just declaring it to be a completely false statement. Right? It's just a misunderstanding, something that people think is in the Bible but isn't. Um, but as I was reading this and as I was preparing for this, I did come across a couple of perspectives that gave some nuances that I do want to address. So it's not quite as cut and dry as I had originally planned for this to be. Uh, so we have two different ways that we can go with this statement. All right? And the first way that we go on it is salvation. And as far as salvation is concerned, this is completely false. Completely and utterly false. I want us to read through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And there we're going to see that we contribute nothing to our salvation. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Notice the language that Paul uses regarding, and this is all in past tense because he's writing to the believers uh, in the church at Ephesus. So he's speaking in past tense terms, but what we need to be mindful of here is the, the language that he uses about who they once were. What does he say there in verse 1? You were what in your trespasses and sins? Dead. You were not bad in your trespasses and sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what do dead people do? Nothing. Dead people do nothing. They can't contribute anything to the world any longer. They do not add anything to their own lives because they don't have a life. And so Paul here says that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. What we bring to ourselves in our sin is death. And we are by nature spiritually dead and we will eventually be physically dead at some point in our life if Christ doesn't return before we go into the grave. But we were dead in our trespasses and sins before we had a relationship with Christ. And then Christ did not spend time rifling through his Rolodex saying, well, this one's pretty good. This one's kind of good. Maybe we'll save this one. This one's on the fence. We'll see about this. We'll see what they contribute in the world before, we, before I go to the cross. We don't see anything of that. Because there's none of that. It's a mistake for us to think that there is anything good in us. Right? Looking at the next verse there on the back of your worship guide, Romans 3, 18, 10 to 18, it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No, when Jesus went to the cross, He didn't die for some good people and some alright people and some okay people and some sinful people. He died for sinful people. He died for evil people. There was nothing that we can contribute to our own salvation because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you keep reading in Romans 3, verse 23, that's what Paul tells us. Jesus did not look at your life into the future and see that you would eventually choose Him or that you were good enough for Him. He went to the cross because you couldn't do anything in and of yourself to save yourself, to warrant that salvation. Isaiah 64 verses 5 and 6 says, You become the one who joyfully does what is right. They remember you in, their, in your ways, but we have sinned and you were angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? All of us have become like something unclean. All of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and all of our iniquities carry us away like the wind. On your best day, the day that you choose to honor God with every aspect of your life as much as you possibly can, Isaiah tells us that that is like presenting God with a polluted garment. That it's a little disgusting when you get into the, the reality of what that is. That was a soiled minstrel garment. So on your best day, the best you have to present to God is a soiled minstrel rag. That's your best. And yet we have some people that believe that God helps those who help themselves, right? As long as you can contribute to some of that karmic good, people believe that some of that will warrant your salvation. They will believe that if you continue down that path, you have earned goodness and salvation, the title of good and the, and the gift of salvation. But in reality, when we look through the pages of Scripture, we see that God does not help those who help themselves because He can't help anyone who helps themselves because there's no one who helps themselves. When it comes to our salvation, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to warrant it. There's nothing that we can do to contribute to it. All we can accept is a free gift of Christ's righteousness that came through Him living the life that we should have lived, dying the death that we deserve, and taking on all of God's wrath for our sin. He becomes our sin, and we receive His righteousness. So God helped those who could not help themselves. That is the gospel. There is no pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. One, you're dead. And two, even if you could do that, your corrupt, dirty fingers would then make it unwarranted for your salvation, no matter how good you could be, no matter how good I am. By the world's standards, I might fall into the category of a good man. I might fall into the category of a godly man, but I sin on a daily basis. 
I fall short of the glory of God on a daily basis, and there is nothing that I have done to warrant my salvation. There is nothing that you can do to warrant your salvation. So in that sense, God does not help those who help themselves because we could not help ourselves. But we see that the the free gift of God is salvation through Christ's righteousness. And we do that through faith. Still nothing that we have done. right? So that no one can boast. That's what Paul said. If you were able to warrant any of this on your own, you could say, ha-ha, look how good I am. But in reality, Scripture will not allow you that. So what we have there is this free gift that God has given you in spite of your sin. And so in that, we do not have any way to help ourselves. So if that is how you mean it when you say God helps those who help themselves, you're completely wrong. You can't, you can't warrant that from Scripture. But, like I said, there's some nuances here. And that was, that was going to be my, the whole sermon before was just that but there are some nuances that I wanted to point out that I came across as I was studying for this so on your best day you can't help yourself toward salvation but when you look through the Bible at other situations we see that there's often an expectation of the Lord for his people to do something to get what they need or what they want we're going to take a look at a few of those you see that initially Well, not initially, but in one place that we see it is when God sends his people into the promised land in the book of Joshua. God said that his people, he's giving the people the land, but they're going to have to drive out the people that were already there. And the reason why they got sent away from the promised land to start with is because they looked at those people. They said, those people are huge. We can't do this. And those people are massive. We don't have it in us. And God said, well, if you're not going to do it, I'll wait to the next generation who will. And they go wander around in the desert for a while. And then the next generation goes in and they take over the promised land. But there was an expectation that they were going to go and they were going to trust God and they were going to do what God said. Could God have just evacuated the land without any effort from his people? Absolutely. But that's not how he chose to work that out. He had an expectation that his people would trust him and do what he said, go into the land and drive those people out. And then another area we can point to, uh, this one is in your notes there, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-13, through 13, we see that God has expectations that his people are going to work. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-13, through 13, Paul says this, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, worked night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is... What we commanded you, if anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. There are, they are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not weary in doing good. So being lazy and sitting around waiting on God to provide food is not how Christians are called to live. Right? If we can work, we should work. 
That was the expectation since before the fall. Right? A lot of people think that work is something that we now have to do because sin entered the world. But in reality, in Genesis 1, in Genesis chapter 2, before sin ever entered the world, we see that God tells Adam to work the garden and watch over it. We were created for work. We were created to be busy. Can God provide us with food without us doing anything? Absolutely. God can do anything that God wants to do. I want to look at this in Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 20. If you'd like to turn there, we're going to look at all of those verses. In Exodus 16, verses 1 and 20, we see this. The entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam, Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are you that we, I'm sorry, for who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued. The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning. For he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness and there in a cloud, the Lord's glory appeared. The Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. When they measured it by quarts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus. The person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as they needed to eat. Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. All right, so that was a lot. But we see in these verses that God provides food in the wilderness. Right? There was nothing that they did, nothing that they had to do to get the food there. Now, they obviously had to go out. They had to pick it up. They had to prepare it. They had to do all of that. But the food was provided. Right? They didn't work for it, never earned it, and God put it before them just like that. It just appeared. Right? He also does that with water in the desert as well. They wander around. They look for water. They can't find any water. They grumble in the same way that they were grumbling because of this food. And God provides water from a rock. 
And sometimes Moses was to strike the rock, sometimes he was to speak to the rock, but water would flow from the rock. And so it is well within God's capability of providing every single thing that we need without us having to work for it. But the expectation is that he's going to, he wants us to work for it. All right, we see another example of this very same thing with Jesus multiplying two fish and five loaves in the Gospels. Right, in, that sto- in that story, we see that there's a group of people that are, they've been there all day, they're hungry, and Jesus says, well, feed them. They said, we, have no, we couldn't pay for everybody's food here with a year's worth of wages. And one of them comes up with what amounts to a lunchable, right? You've got two fish and five loaves, and Jesus says, give to everybody as much as they want. And those two fish and five loaves, they miraculously multiply. So God is not in need of our effort to provide us with the things that we need. He can absolutely supply us with those needs. But there is generally an expectation of effort from his people. He wants us to work. He wants us to do what we can to supply for our own needs and supply for the needs of those who cannot work. So there is an expectation. So in this instance, God does help those who help themselves. Another thing that came to my mind while I was thinking about this and preparing for this are relationships, right? Are you seeking a certain type of relationship, but you're not doing anything about it? One of the professors in seminary, they were laughing because there was, you know, always talk around finding a spouse. And the conversation would come up and say, because Proverbs 18.22 says, a man who finds a wife finds a good thing and, and wins favor with the Lord. Right? And so the, the professors would be like, what are you doing to find this spouse? Right? Because a lot of these guys were coming either right out of high school, this was their college stuff that they were pursuing, or you know, they were in just out of college and this was their master's degree. It's like, are you, you know, what do you do to find this wife? Are you just sitting in your mom's basement playing video games? Like, is that, because I mean, you can pray for a wife all day long, but it's highly unlikely that God's just going to open a portal and have someone drop in through the, through the roof, right? So if you're going to find a wife, which is a good thing, you've got to do something to do that. You've got to be where the people are, right? So to find a wife, to find any kind of relationship, if you're looking for a discipleship relationship, or if you're looking for, you know, just a friend to have, You've got to do something in that because it's highly unlikely that God's just going to drop someone in your lap. Maybe he will. He can. He absolutely can. It's just not likely that that is going to happen. And the last thing that I wanted to mention, and I could go on and on after I started thinking about it, these things started rattling off. Um, But what about salvation of others? We know that our salvation, there's nothing that we can do to warrant our salvation. And there is nothing that, for the people that we want to see saved, there's nothing that they can do to warrant their salvation. But what about our responsibility to those people who are not saved, that God has sovereignly placed in our life? Do we have responsibility for those people? And I would say yes, we do. Can God save people without our help? 100% absolutely. Now, if you read up on stuff that's happening in the world in places that aren't here, we see all the time that in Muslim countries, for example, where there is no source of the gospel really to be found at all, if there is, it's just a very little bit, we see that these people have dreams. They have dreams of Jesus. 
There's one story where two missionaries were going out across the desert to go to an unknown people group. And on their way there, they had found two people that were coming the other direction. And those two people had had a dream that Jesus was in the dream and he told them to go find people of the book. And so you got these two people coming this way, these two people coming this way. They cross paths, sovereignly cross paths. And when they started talking, they're like, are you people of the book? They're like, what, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, we had a dream of a man named, he didn't say Jesus, but it was Isa. And he told us to go find people of the book. And they go, yeah, we're people of the book. And so they shared the gospel with them and those two people got saved. Right? That came from no effort from anyone other than the missionaries being obedient to go in the direction that they were called to go in. But God is already drawing these people to him. So no, absolutely not. He does not need us for this, but he has chosen us to do this. And he has sovereignly placed people in our lives so that we would take the message of the gospel to them so that they can see the message of the gospel playing out in our lives to see what we really trust and believe. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15 says, How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Will people that we pray for, that we want to see come to faith, will they get saved without our effort of sharing the gospel with them? It's possible, right? God can do whatever God wants to do, but it's much more likely that God placed them in your life so that you could be the one to share the gospel with them. So that you could be the one that shows what it looks like to follow after Christ. So that you can be the one to show that you didn't earn this salvation. It was a free gift from God to you. And you present that opportunity to them and say, hey, do you want this free gift as well? And then there's nothing else that we can do after that. There, we, we can't change people's hearts. The Holy Spirit has to be the one that changes hearts. But he has called his people to take this message out into the world, into the nations, to show people what it means to be his follower. And sometimes we do a good job at it and sometimes we don't. We see there's a lot of new believers, I would assume, here that are showing that there's different aspects of spirituality that they believe that aren't part of the Christian faith. That's part of where all of this misconceptions about Christianity comes from. We got people who have wrong ideas because we haven't discipled well. And we need to be faithful with that. That's another part of what we are called to do. When Jesus told the disciples to go out into the nations, he says, teach them all that I have commanded you. That's part of that relationship. That's part of that expectation that God has for us. Could he you know, do something like the Matrix where you just plug in and all of a sudden every, every aspect of, of God is known? Sure, he could do that, but that's not the way that he chooses to do that. So on this side of that, when it comes to some of the actions that we are called to do, the commands that we are called to take part in, does God help those who help themselves? Yes. In that, he does. Because, again, you're pursuing those relationships. You're pursuing the people who are far from him. You're making possible the, the connection so that people see the realities of this stuff. 
Right? You're finding that person that you want to be in relationship with. You're finding the job so that you can eat. Right? Will somebody, could a recruiter call you while you're sitting around eating Cheetos, praying for a job? Sure. Absolutely. Is that the way that it normally works, though? No. It's not. There is an expectation that we will put feet on the ground and go out and do what God has called us to do. And so my question to you is, are you in the process of trying to earn your salvation? Or to stay on the proper side of God if you have your salvation? Because it is impossible for you to earn your salvation. There is nothing good in you that can warrant that. There is nothing that you can do that will counterbalance the sin against a holy and righteous God. But Christ came to give you the free gift of salvation that you cannot earn, you do not deserve, but it is offered to all who will accept it. And if you're here today and that's you, I'd like to talk to you after the service. On the other side of that, are you trying to warrant your salvation on the other side of that where you're trying to do these good deeds so that you can keep yourself in God's good graces. That is not how this works. God's love for you comes from the sacrifice of Christ. And so on your best day, God cannot love you anymore because he loves you on, because of Jesus. And on your worst day, when you are screwing up everything and there is not one bit of godliness in you, Jesus, they can't love you any less because Jesus shed his blood for you. And when God the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus, not you. So you should rest in that. But also, are you in the process of trying to get God to do something for you that you're not willing to put the effort toward yourself? Are you looking for a job and and just sitting around praying about it, waiting for God to do something? Then you should get to work. You should put... The resume's out there. You should go knock on some doors. You should do something for yourself and see what door God opens in the process of that. Are you searching for a relationship of some kind and just praying that God will bring that relationship into your life? Right? I, I, I met someone the other day who, who is praying about being in discipleship relationships with people, and they're not, he's not finding that. He wants to be involved in it. And so he's approaching people and talking to them and saying, hey, you got any interest in discipleship, either to to give or to receive? And that was the whole conversation that we had the first time that we sat down and had coffee together was, you know, here's what I want, and here are the steps that I'm taking to get that. And I'm praying that God would make that fruitful. And I said, dude, that's awesome. Like, I don't think there's any way that you can do that any better. He's like, in the meantime, I'm going to start with my wife and my children. Because they're in the house with me and they have to. (laughs) He said, but I'm praying that there will be other people from the church, other people from the community that want this type of relationship. And I'm praying that God will open that door. And I'm talking to people as I go for that. And is that you? Are you on either the one who wants to pour out? Or are you on the, the end of someone who wants to be poured into? And if that's the case, then you have to take the steps to make that happen. And pray that God would open the door for that as you go. And he is faithful to do that type of stuff. And also, lastly, are you praying for the salvation of someone that you know, but you're not actively being the one to share the gospel with them? It's so much more likely that they're going to hear it from someone that they know, from someone that hopefully they trust, 
than it is from someone to come completely out of left field and to share the, the message of salvation with them. Now, the Holy Spirit can do whatever He wants. He can change hearts using anything and everything that He wants to. But we see in Acts chapter 17 that God places us where we are, when we are, for the purpose of being the presence of God for people in our life. Right? As we go, we're supposed to be sharing the message of the gospel. And so we should be willing to put ourselves out there to these people, present the gospel to them, and then let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does. And will he help us see people come to faith in our life if we take those steps? Yes, he will. It might not be everybody that we want, and it might not be as often as we want. But we know for a fact that God's word does not go out and return void. And so we need to be faithful to proclaim that. And so in all of this, as we take all of these different misconceptions that we've addressed over the last nine, ten weeks, we need to be pushing back the darkness and pushing back that stuff that people want to have tickle their ears. All right, we're, we're wrapping this up today with this one because I want you to be faithful to, one, to know that you didn't help yourself become saved and that anybody that you want to be saved, is, they're not capable of warranting that themselves either. And I want you to be faithful to take the message out to them so that the Holy Spirit can do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Does God help those who help themselves? Sort of. Depends on what we're talking about. Let's pray together. Father, it's my desire that we would realize just how little we are owed, how little we deserve. And so when we think about the beauty of salvation offered in Christ, we are overjoyed with the fact that we get to be called your people. I pray that we would be mindful that those who are in our life around us, they can't warrant their salvation either. And I pray that we would be mindful that you have put them in our lives so that we can be faithful to share the gospel message with them. And I pray that we would be, we would desire to, to take that message. That we would realize that the gospel is your preferred method for this salvation to come about. And we are called to take that to the world. And sometimes that just means going across the living room. Sometimes it means going across the road. Sometimes it means going across the world. And I pray that we would be faithful to do all of that. Whatever you call us to do, Lord, I pray that we would be uh, persistent in pursuing it. I ask this all in your son's precious name. Amen.